pray for those here in our neighborhood. I want to remind you that we have uh, some, some of our uh, gifts that we gave out at Christmas time. We have very similar gifts to give out here at Easter time, and so I want to encourage you to take those. So we have these cards, the invitations to Easter and Good Friday. Uh, remember at Christmas time we gave out um, mugs with Christmas candy and things like that. Well, the company that made the mugs uh, botched the order in some ways, and so they gave us a refund, but they also, without us asking, sent us some more mugs. So we're kind of like, oh, okay, well, we have to figure out something to do with these. So we had the Clemson team pack them and distribute some of them to other parts of the neighborhood we haven't been to a few weeks ago. But we have probably a dozen or 18 or so mugs that are packed and ready to go. They have these invitations in them. They have candy in them. And so if you have a neighbor that you would like to invite to the Good Friday service or a coworker or a relative or anything like that, We'd love for you to take one of those or a couple of those and hand those out. They don't do us any good being filled with candy that will eventually deteriorate um, and cards that invite people to something that will eventually be in the past. So go ahead and take those and give them out and uh, be jolly while you do it, I guess. But uh, looking forward to seeing how the Lord will use those services in our church and in our lives and in our evangelism. Luke chapter 9 is our passage for today that we'll uh, study together, the portion of God's Word that we'll... Enjoy learning more about and seeing God's grace in Luke 9, verses 37 through 56. This is a rather lengthy passage in terms of how the book of Luke is laid out. I've combined basically five small passages. Um, You could call them little vignettes or any kind of uh, description you'd like to use there. But uh, what we've sought to do in this sermon is tie uh, five similar passages together that give one coherent message, I believe. And so, you know, different preachers are going to divide this text in different ways and stop at other points different than I do, and of course that's totally appropriate. But uh, in this case, we're going to go all the way through verse 56. So follow along as I read Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 56. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, we'd love for you to grab one off the resource table, either now or after the service. Uh, Those are there available for you. This is Luke 9, 37 and following. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. 
John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near to him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. In the summer of 1972, the trajectory of the lives of two young, inexperienced journalists were changed forever. And for that matter, our nation's uh, trajectory was changed forever in one sense at least as well. Those two men were named Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, and perhaps you know them from the story uh, that they wrote in the book, All the President's Men, which then was turned into a movie starring, I think, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman or something like that. And uh, they, they basically recounted the details of what happened on that uh, night when uh, some burglars uh, committed what was later referred to as a third-rate burglary at the Watergate building in Washington, D.C., and eventually broke open a scandal that, that brought down the president himself. But as Bernstein and Woodward got into that story, they were called into their office on, at the Washington Post on a Saturday morning. Uh, basically, they were kind of the lowest... They were at the bottom of the totem pole, so they were assigned to this job, and, and so they came into the office that Saturday morning and started uncovering these, these leads, the details that were available to them at the time, and would go one step further and one step further, and eventually they realized that a lot of the people who were involved in the Watergate scandal were very close to the president, were actually uh, very uh, close uh, aides of the president, and they're the ones who are kind of orchestrating these details and who called for this third-rate burglary, and uh, they would just time and time again just kind of have to put their hands over their mouths and say, I can't believe what we're getting to here. This is a big story. You would think that the people who are the closest to the president would be the people who are the most integritous who are the most willing to stand up for what's right, who are the least willing to get involved in third-rate burglaries. But that was not the case at all. And in our passage today, you see the disciples falling over themselves time and time again. And you would think the people who are the closest to Jesus would be the ones who have the greatest faith and the highest morals and the most compassion and patience And that's not what we see at all in this passage that describes the weak and failing disciples who followed Jesus even in his day, even standing side by side with him. But as we look through this passage, as we've just read through it, we need to be pretty humble ourselves when we realize that these guys weren't any different than we are. We ourselves are weak and failing disciples. And that's not great news when you consider the gist of this passage, which is that Jesus requires faithful disciples. He requires faithful disciples. And we immediately look into our own hearts and see our own unfaithfulness and our own waverings and our own failures that we have been so um, 
importantly reminded of in the various prayers and songs and other elements of our worship service today, Jesus requires faithful disciples, and we ourselves are unfaithful. And so what this passage then calls us to do is repent of the sins that hinder your discipleship. Even as the author of Hebrews says, to lay aside every weight that keeps you from following Christ, we as God's people repent of the sins that hinder your discipleship. And so in these five little pictures, snapshots of the life of Jesus and the life of the disciples who were traveling with him, the closest with him, what we see are five sins that we as his disciples need to repent of as we seek to faithfully follow Christ as he requires. Or we could say these are the five temptations of a disciple. And so as we've worked our way through Luke to this point, what we've seen is that most passages are either answering one or uh, are answering either one or the other of these two questions. Who is Jesus and what does it look like to follow him? And as we study this passage, we could focus for sure on what this passage says about Jesus. But I think this, the, the weight, the emphasis of this passage is particularly on what does it look like to follow Jesus? And so a, a faithful follower of Jesus, someone who is eagerly ready to repent of their sins so that they can follow him, will be aware of these five temptations or these five sins and seek to remove them from their lives. And so in verses 37 through uh, the beginning of verse 43, so perhaps your Bible breaks there as mine does, not broken, but stops the verse, verse 43 there in the middle. Uh, From verse 37 through the middle of verse 43, we see that those who follow Jesus must repent of faithlessness, of a lack of faith. And so we have here these disciples who are coming down from the mountain with Jesus. So Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on the mountain in our passage last week, known as the Transfiguration, which if you weren't here is simply a way of saying that the appearance of Jesus was changed when he was overwhelmed by the glory of God that came down out of a cloud. And uh, if you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that sermon online on our website so you have a better context of what Jesus and Peter, James, and John are coming down from experiencing. But in verse uh, 37, we see that they have come down from the mountain and there's a crowd waiting, almost as if they knew Jesus and these three disciples had uh, been gone for a while and now they've come back and they're all just eagerly waiting as they have been in several other passages before this one. And in that crowd, there's a man who's desperate to get to Jesus. That's happened in almost every passage leading up to this point as well. They know Jesus is powerful and they know he can solve their problems And so they wait for him with bated breath. And this man in the crowd says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. Whether he's saying all you need to do is look at him or he's saying give attention to whatever he means by this, the importance of this is magnified by the fact that he says he is my only child. We've seen this in multiple other passages as well. Remember there is the woman in a town called Nain who they were bringing her son out on a stretcher to go bury him. He's dead and, she's, and it, this was her only son, which means now she has no loved ones who's going to take care of her to the end of her life. Now she's hopeless and helpless, and Jesus raises him from the dead. And one of the reasons he did that was because this was her only child. There are other places like that we've seen already in Luke. And here's another case, at least the third case, where the only child is brought to Jesus for uh, his immediate mercy. The reason that this man was so eager to get to Jesus was because this child was demon-possessed. A spirit was seizing him and 
bringing him down to the ground and thrashing him into the ground and perhaps into other people. It says it convulses him. So he's foaming at the mouth and shattering him. Perhaps it means that he's breaking his bones and will hardly leave him. So this man is in agony watching his child. As those of us who are parents know how agonizing it is to watch our children suffer. You know, we typically would say, I would rather have to go through that myself than watch my child have to go through that suffering. And perhaps that's what he's thinking here as well. But verse 40 is the really interesting kind of kicker here in this story. I begged your disciples. We assume the other nine apostles who were not on that holy mountain with Jesus. So not Peter, James, and John. We assume it's these other nine that he has begged them to, to help. I begged your disciples to cast it out but they could not. Well, that's a problem because if you just look back at chapter 9, verse 1, it says He gave them power and authority over all demons. They had what they needed, the resource they needed to cast out this demon. All 12 of them did as the apostles, the first apostles. And they couldn't do anything about this. And that's why Jesus responds the way he does in verse 41. Using language that is reminiscent of several passages in the book of Deuteronomy, he says to his disciples, I believe, and to all those that are that day who were, who were faithless, I believe excluding the man who brought his son. That man was not faithless because he brought his son to Jesus, knowing that Jesus was the solution. So I would say he's not talking to that man when he says uh, what he does in verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Paul uses that language in Philippians chapter 2 as well, talking about the wicked world in which we live and we are to shine as lights in this world. But Jesus says to his disciples, to all those there that day, except for this man who brought his son, I believe, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you to put up with your lack of faith? And he says to bring the son there and he rebukes the unclean spirit and the boy is healed and people put their hands over their mouths and said, I can't believe he has the power to do this. How does our faithlessness evidence itself? How does it show itself in our, in our lives? I think, for one, we fail to pray. We fail to pray. And this evidences our faithlessness, our inability, our, our, our thinking that God is unable to do what he says that he will do. A second way is by giving up on conversions. Maybe you have someone you've prayed for for years, for most of your life, since you became a Christian, for this person to repent and believe the gospel and become a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And you've given up because it just feels like it's too much to ask for now. This would be an evidence of our faithlessness. A third that perhaps we wouldn't think of off the top of our heads would be the sin of pragmatism. When we begin to think, well, the end is good, so whatever means get us there are fine. But what we often do when we become pragmatic in ministry is go against exactly what God has said to do. And so the sin of pragmatism often is an evidence of our lack of belief, of our faithlessness. This was a temptation for the disciples in Jesus' day, and it's a temptation for us as well. The second sin that those who follow Jesus must repent of is in verses 43 through 45. And this would be 
the way I'm wording it here is a lack of spiritual awareness. Perhaps you can help me think of a better way to phrase that. But in this brief story, we see Jesus telling his disciples again, as he has already done earlier in this passage, in this chapter. So not many days before this, in other words, he tells them that Jesus, the Son of Man, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. In other words, is about to go be crucified. And these disciples are confused. They have a lack of spiritual awareness. Verse 44 is really interesting the way that Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. What that uh, literally means is to put these words into your ears. The way that perhaps if you go to a NASCAR race and you want to take Uh, which I realize some of us would never consider doing. But I used to live in Alabama, so I've gone to a NASCAR race. And uh, if you go to a car race of any kind, I imagine you want to have ear protection of some kind. You want to have earplugs. So what if somebody hands you earplugs on your way in, which they probably wouldn't do. You need to bring your own. But if you take your own earplugs, somebody says, here, take these earplugs. What are they going to tell you to do? Don't just put them in your pocket. Put these into your ears. That's the only way they're going to be helpful for you at that point. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples to do with his words. Put these words into your ears. I'm about to go die. And his disciples scratched their heads. Whereas before they put their hands over their mouths, now they're standing there scratching their heads saying, what is he talking about? But their response, what would your response be? Hopefully you would say, Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Can you explain what you mean by this? And their response in verse 45 was they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They didn't understand it. It was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him. They had a lack of spiritual awareness. They did not understand all that they had read in the Old Testament about the suffering servant, about the exalted king, about the prophet like Moses who had come, all of that was confusing to them. They didn't understand it, and they didn't take advantage of the resource available to them, Jesus himself, to ask the question of what that would even mean. Perhaps this lack of spiritual awareness in our lives is when we choose to leave God's Word alone. And we, we coldly and indifferently say, I really don't need what God says. And so, I'll just not come to church, or I'll just not read my Bible, or I'll just not go through the the regular means of grace that help me grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. That's what Peter tells, this same Peter who is present this day, tells his readers in 2 Peter 3, but grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And we do that by the simple means of grace. We don't need a lightning bolt to give us a revelation from heaven. We have a revelation from heaven right here. We need the regular means of grace to help us know God, to address this sin of lack of spiritual awareness. Verses 46 through 48 gives us our third sin for which disciples must repent. The third temptation we as disciples need to be aware of, and that is the sin of pride. The sin of pride or conceit or arrogance. Verse 46, these disciples begin to argue and reason among themselves about who is the greatest. Come on, guys, really? 
And what we see is that they do this again in, I believe it's chapter 22. Like, how is this really that important to you? Why do you think it's so important to know who's going to sit at the right hand of God in eternity? Come on, guys. But here they are having this conversation, showing their arrogance, their lack of spiritual maturity again. And Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts, as he has in multiple passages before this in Luke. And as a way of showing them who the greatest is, he called a child over to his side. And whether this child is a toddler or even younger or perhaps a little bit older, we don't know. But he calls a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and the Father. That is the person who he says is the one who sent me. The least among you is the one who is great. He doesn't even say the least among you is the one who is greatest. He's the one who is who is great. And I think we, we can supply the, the, the words, or at least the concept, great in the eyes of God, because that's ultimately what they're talking about. They're concerned about who is greatest in God's eyes, and Jesus says, leave that arrogant conversation aside. Show your love for those who are unable to protect themselves. A child in this day that Jesus is living in would have been weak and insignificant, Kind of the idea that when you read like the Little House on the Prairie books, a child at the table is not a child who talks, right? I don't remember how they, how they put it exactly, but, you know, a child should be seen, not heard. I think that's the phrase that comes up a lot in the Little House on the Prairie books. And what Jesus would say is, no, a child is important. Not weak and insignificant, is important. So how do we, as Christians in this church, demonstrate our love for weak and insignificant people. For one, on the back of your sermon card, we have our uh, church core commitments, the, the things that we hold to and profess to, to, uh, to seek to uh, encourage in, in our midst and in our church family. And one of those is defending the defenseless. And that can be children, that can be people in a nursing home, that can be people in a hospital, that can be any number of people, really. But what Jesus is saying here is, Show your concern for those who cannot help themselves. In his day, especially people like children, or as I was just describing, a woman with no children or husband, she is going to be often defenseless in that situation. And so one of the ways we can show our concern for the defenseless is by serving in our children's ministry. Ding, 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 right? Like this is a quick plug for we always have opportunities to serve our church family. Uh, those especially with, with young children. And we are uh, praying the Lord will provide more people to serve in that ministry. We're praying the Lord will send us more children as well in our congregation, more families with children uh, for us to have the privilege of serving and teaching the gospel to. But we need people to do that. And so we would ask you to consider laying down your right of not having to do that as a means of serving those with young children. That's one of our highest priorities in having a children's ministry at all is A, teaching them the gospel, but B, allowing parents to have ah, an hour of not having my child squirm against me. And sometimes we want our children to squirm against us. That is your right as well. That is your, your absolute prerogative to not have your children go in the children's ministry. I'm just saying, uh, if you want to take advantage of that, we want to give those parents that opportunity to do that. And so, how do you serve in children's ministry? A, become a member. So talk to me after the service about that. 
B, let me or Israel or Clayton know that you would like to do that. C, we'll go through some paperwork and things like that. But uh, the opportunity is there for you. We want to, uh, to, to help you demonstrate humility, lack of pride, lack of arrogance by serving the least of these in our congregation. There was a time uh, at our church in South Carolina when I was in seminary, Clarissa and I were newly married, and uh, we worked in the nursery once a month at, at, those, uh, at that time in our lives, just as a means of serving our church family there, and uh, I had to change the nastiest diaper I have ever changed in my life, and I have three children, and I can still tell you that child's name, I know where he lives today. He may not know who I am, but I know who he is, and I'm just saying, I laid down my right of being in that worship service uh, to change that nastiest diaper. Like it was like it had to go to the dumpster right away, that kind of a deal, all right? And so without other details, and uh, there's no reason to give more details, but what, all I'm saying is you have that opportunity as well to say, you know what, I don't need recognition. I don't need that child who lives in, in uh, you know, Washington State now to know that I went through that for him and for, for his family's sake. I don't need recognition. I just want to serve Christ. And we do that out of the humility that God gives us by His grace. And so we evidence our pride by wanting recognition, by demanding our own way. And the Lord would say, serve the least of these. That's how we demonstrate our humility, our desire to serve the Lord His way. Verse uh, 49 through verse 50 gives us our fourth sin, the fourth temptation of a disciple fourth sin that a disciple needs to repent of, and that is the sin of tribalism or territorialism. You could give it a number of other words as well, but specifically this idea that we want everybody to be just like us. Check all the same boxes as us, dot their I's with the exact same kind of dot that we use, and cross their T's with the exact same line that, they, that we use, the sin of territorialism or tribalism or possessiveness. Again, you could use a variety of words here. But these really are an a, uh, outflow of the same kind of sin, of pride and arrogance. And what you see in this passage where, where John, again, one of Jesus' closest disciples, we talked last week about how you have you know, lots of disciples, then you have the 12 disciples, then you have Peter, James, and John, and in, in the Gospel of John we see that, that Jesus referred to John as the beloved disciple. So here he is, perhaps his best friend, and, and John says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not just like us. He's not following in our little group. And Jesus says, don't stop him. He's on our side. What was John communicating when he said that? We don't really know who the enemy is. That's what they're kind of expressing there. They were unclear on the enemy. And what I would say is that we sometimes can be ridiculous about trying to get people to dot their I's and cross their T's the same way we do. Sometimes this happens through denominational distinctives or highlighting petty doctrines or, and by that I mean third-level doctrines, which I'll come back to in just a second, or erecting boundary markers and saying we are the insiders and the rest are outsiders. Now, I mean, there are so many ways I want to make sure I'm super clear on this. One is the Bible itself uses insider and outsider language. So when we talk about church membership, we're saying we want you to be an insider, to be demonstrating your faithfulness to Christ by being willing to align yourself with other Christians and serve one another together. 
which allows us to fulfill so many of the New Testament commands, uh, one another commands. So we, we need to have this category of inside and outside. But sometimes we draw the circle around us far too tightly when it comes to who is a Christian, for instance, or what does it mean to be a faithful Christian. And so uh, we need to be clear that, that when someone believes the same gospel that we believe, they are an insider in the truest sense. They are standing against the evil one and all those who align themselves against, uh, with the evil one. So if someone is against the evil one, that means that they are for Christ. Or if they are for Christ, that means they're against the evil one. And so those are our people. Those are our insiders. Those are the people that we link arms with even when we don't agree on every last detail of theology, for instance. So a, a faithful brother named Gavin Ortland, a pastor in California, writes this about the dangerous is in a book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. In a chapter called The Danger of Doctrinal Sectarianism, he says, we know there is a spirit of self-justification about our theology when we feel superior to Christians from other tribes and groups, or when a particular believer, church, or group unduly annoys us. It is one thing to disagree with another Christian. That is inevitable to anyone who thinks. It is another thing when our disagreement takes an attitude of contempt, condescension, or undue suspicion toward those with whom we disagree. If our identity is is riding on our differences with other believers, we will tend to major in the study of differences. We may even find ourselves looking for faults in others in order to define ourselves. So what this book does is lays out ways to make sure that you are prioritizing what the Bible itself prioritizes. You have first-level doctrines, like the fact that Jesus is truly God and truly man, like the fact that we are only forgiven by grace through faith in Christ alone. These are first-level, like you are not a Christian if you disagree with these things. But what John is laying out here is a pretty minor difference, like he just isn't part of our inside group. Well, at the most, that's a second-level difference, which in our context would be something like the mode of baptism, Should somebody, and, and even who should be baptized, the who and the how of baptism. We make that an important distinction in our church. I mean, I'm a Baptist pastor, so you kind of expect me to think that there is a right and a wrong on this issue, and I think I'm right. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a Baptist pastor, okay? Just to be clear about this. But, so this guy... Gavin Ortland is the brother of Dane Ortland, who is a pastor in Naperville at a Presbyterian church, which means he baptizes babies. And I'd be willing to take a bullet for a fellow Christian like that. Because that difference is this big. Whereas the difference between us and a Muslim or us and a Jehovah's Witness is this big. We're not even in the same orbit when we come to theology. Not saying by any means that I wouldn't take a bullet for a Muslim if it meant that they would put their faith in Christ, okay? I'm just simply saying as far as theology goes, we're not even on the same page, right? I mean, they're not holding first-level doctrines the way that we do. They're not saying Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And so there's a huge difference there. But when we're talking about something minor like baptism, that's a second-level issue. You know, if you disagree with me, you think we should be baptizing infants, we love you. And we highly recommend Naperville Presbyterian Church or Trinity Church of Hinsdale and a variety of other 
faithful gospel preaching churches that baptize babies, all right? So you can't have faithful gospel preaching baby baptizing churches. This is not one of them, just to be clear. There is a baptistry right there. Uh, Not an infant-sized one. A third level difference would be something like, you know, should, should, uh, I don't know, I should have thought of one in in advance that's not the typical ones I use. So give me just a second here. I'll use this one. I truly think this is a third level difference. And this is the millennium. I have my convictions about that. You should probably have some thoughts about that, even if you don't exactly understand the differences. But I think a healthy church has people who come at that issue from a variety of perspectives. In other words, I think it's relatively unhealthy, at least relatively unhealthy, for us to say you have to agree with us on this point. I'm going to probably disagree with you. I do disagree with you, just to be clear. Uh, But sometimes we draw those lines really hard in the ground and say, "Uh, Master, we told him to stop teaching the Bible because he didn't believe what we believe about the Bible. And Jesus would say, do not stop him because the one who is not against you is for you. He's not the enemy. The enemy is really bad and really powerful and is destroying people's lives through the kinds of sins that Eddie and Israel and Clayton have have helped us pray about today. Let's be clear on who the enemy is, and let's be clear on what a Christian is, and rejoice everywhere the gospel is faithfully being preached. This is what Paul's perspective in Philippians chapter 1. I won't take the time to read it, but I think it's verse 15 through 18 or so in Philippians 1. And basically he says, there are people who are preaching Christ for a variety of motives, with a variety of motives. Some are doing it because they truly love Christ, and some are doing it with pretty bad motives. But as long as Christ is being preached, I will rejoice. And that should be our spirit as well. And so the fifth sin then in this passage is this idea of anger or impatience. And this is in verses 51 through 56. And again, just to kind of summarize a little bit here, as we've already read the passage Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, this is a hinge point in the book of Luke where now Jesus is heading to go be crucified. He knows that's what he has been called to endure for the sake of our souls, for the sake of our sins. And so he sets his face. He is intent to go. There's nothing that's going to stop him. And one of the ways to get there is through Samaria, the enemies of the Jewish people. And he says, let's go through that way. And he sends some of his disciples to go make preparations, which probably means find a place for us to sleep tonight. You don't need to make it any more complicated than that. Maybe find some food along the way while you're at it, but find a place for us to sleep. And on their way, we we see in verse 53, the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. There are historians who tell stories from this era, from this time in human history, where Jewish people who would walk through Samaria... Uh, particularly to go to a Jewish festival in Jerusalem, would be killed on their way there because they were the enemy. And so when they saw what Jesus was going to Jerusalem with these people, we're not going to let them stay here. James and John didn't respond too well to that. Kind of the same idea. This, this, this sin of, of pride is uh, evidencing itself one more way here. Verse 54, they saw it, James and John saw it, and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven? It's kind of like, wow, like, Hold your horses a little bit and rewind to chapter 6 where Jesus says, love your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you. We don't need fire coming down from heaven here. We appreciate James and John's enthusiasm for holiness and uh, power in our, our, our faith in God's power. Those are good virtues. You know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt here. They were obviously on Jesus' side. But again, a little possessive, a little defensive, a little angry. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Love your enemies. Go back to chapter 6, verse 27 or so. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So verse 55, where Jesus rebukes them, what I want to emphasize there is that a rebuke is loving. A rebuke is loving. It's not given out of anger, and it's not given out of um, any motive but love. This is why the Proverbs tell us that the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. You'd rather have somebody kiss you on the cheek than slap you on the cheek. But Jesus is saying, and the Proverbs say, no, 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 you'd rather have somebody slap you on the cheek, so to speak, if it means that it keeps you from sin. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, no, 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 guys, you're getting it all wrong. Our priority is to see sinners converted, not destroyed. All right? This is really where the the conquests in about the year 1000 or so really went wrong. Yes, we want to emphasize the holiness of God, but we also want to emphasize the love and the mercy and the patience of God. So the disciples here were misguided. The people needed to be converted, not destroyed. These disciples here are misunderstanding their mission, their enemy, their, uh, the nature of their role. And what they needed was this faithful, loving wound of a friend from Jesus who said, no, 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 this is not what we need. Repent of this sin of anger and impatience. Just as we need to repent of our sins of faithlessness, lack of spiritual awareness, pride, and tribalism. So that is our ultimate response to this passage is repentance heartfelt spirit driven repentance where we say lord forgive me for the evidences of these sins in my life and a second obvious response from this passage is lord thank you for your patience with me because i see all five of these sins in my heart do you i I hope that there's at least some semblance of the way that you can look in your In the mirror of God's word, we can say, and say, yeah, I see myself there, and it's not pretty. But wow, God has been long-suffering toward me. He's putting up with my failures and my weaknesses. And praise the Lord when he also gives you friends who rebuke you to help you repent, to point out ways that you aren't even aware of in your life to help you repent. You would think that the disciples would be the people who had their act together the most. They were not. You would also think that the people who were the closest to the president in 1972 through about 1974 would have been the most, would have, of all people, had their act together the most. And that was not the case. And what Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein discovered was it was not just the people who were closest to the president who were corrupt, The president himself was corrupt and needed a stern rebuke and ended up resigning over that sin, the the sins that were becoming obvious through that scandal. Thankfully, our leader, our Savior, the one that we are called to be like, has never committed any of these sins. 
that we are called to repent of. And so we put our hope in Him, and we ask Him for His grace. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we bless You for persevering with us, for bearing with us, for forgiving us. But in these ways in which we have seen the ugliness of our hearts, anger and pride and tribalism and so on, we pray that You would give us heartfelt repentance and faith that You have the power to change our hearts and that You will indeed do that until the day we see You face to face. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.